Hi, this is Amanda. And this is Lindsay. We're True Creeps. Where the stories are true. And the creeps are real. We'll cover stories from grotesque gore. To the possibly plausible paranormal. To horrifying history. To tense and terrible true crime. And everything else that goes bump in the night. We want you to join us while we creep. We cover mature topics. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, everyone. Today, we are going to be talking about the Dybbuk box. And this was already brought up in our Cursed People episode. And we started researching it and found out there's a lot to it. And we wanted to continue that. So in that episode, we talked about how Zach Baggins pretty much is to blame for the curse that Post Malone had to go through, right? As always, fuck Zach Baggins. Everything's his fault. This really solidified it for me. I have a simmering rage throughout this. We'll get to why. But if you detect it, you're not crazy. I am angry. Yes. A memoir. (laughs) I should write that. (laughs) When we started researching it, yeah, we thought, you know, Curse Box, we're going to talk about more on what it actually is and our thoughts on it later. But we wanted to continue the story of where we had left off in that episode. So we talked a little bit about Post Malone visiting the Haunted Museum in Las Vegas owned by Zach Baggins in 2018. What ensued afterwards? And then we wanted to pick up with the box itself. Like, where did it come from? How did Zach get possession of this box? And a little bit of the background of what's been circulating about this box. So in 2003, this is taken from an eBay listing, by the way. Because someone had purchased this on eBay as a wine cabinet before it made its way to the museum. And from the eBay listing, in 2003, Kevin Manis, a writer and an owner of a furniture refinishing business, auctioned the wine cabinet on the site. I'd also like to add that Kevin Manis was a horror writer. Yes. Just wanted to underline that real quick. (laughs) The description included a story that the cabinet was previously owned by a survivor of the Holocaust in Poland who said it contained a malicious spirit of a Dybbuk. It also caused things like bad luck and nightmares. The owner before that was the woman just described. She had been the only survivor from her family in the concentration camp after escaping to Spain. While in Spain, she got the box, along with a sewing box and a steamer trunk. And those were the only things that immigrated with her to the United States. After her passing is when Manus purchased the box. She died at 103 years old. He bought it at an estate sale her granddaughter held. He ended up buying it along with the sewing box. Some sources say her name was Havela. After the sale, the granddaughter approached him and said, growing up, my grandmother called it a Dybbuk box. When the granddaughter asked her grandmother about what was inside of it when she was younger, the grandmother would spit three times through her fingers and say, a Dybbuk. She also said it was never, ever to be opened. The grandmother wanted it buried with her, but the request did not follow Orthodox Jewish burials and it was not honored. I just want to state, Lindsay, if I ever say bury some weird box with me, I'm going to need you to make sure that that happens. Yeah, I mean, that's fair. However, I do feel like if there's religious practices at play, that is, in fact, the only part of the story that I will accept as making sense. That is true. (laughs) Put the box with you. Yeah, put the box with you. I got it. I got it. Put the box with me. So... Manus asked if she wanted to open it with him, and she declined. And she said her grandmother was very serious about not opening it. 
Manus also offered for her to keep it, and then she also declined that too. From what he said, or from what was in the listing, he even offered to give it back without the money, which is very weird for someone that just bought something from an estate sale, right? If he was trying to be like the nice guy and be like, no, if you really want to keep it. Also, she wouldn't have listed it for sale if that was the case. But she did say, I don't want it. You bought it. You made a deal. And then she cried. Interesting. I'd be highly alarmed. Right. I mean, this says bad news all over it, right? So Manus took the cabinet back to his furniture business and put it in the basement workshop with the intention to refinish it and then give it to his mother. Why does he hate his mother? What a weird series of events. Because he was, correct me if I'm wrong, buying these items for his store. Yeah, he was going to buy it for the store. But I guess this in particular, he's like, oh, my mother's birthday's coming up. This would be a cool gift. And I don't like her, I guess. So, Mm -hmm. well, especially if someone's like, no, take it. Don't open it. Yeah. The first thought would not be my mother. It would be someone that I greatly did not like. So he opened his shop for the day and then had to leave to run some errands. He left one of his employees with the shop about a half hour later. She called him hysterical, saying that someone was in the workshop breaking glass and swearing. She says that she heard someone. The intruder had also locked the security gates and the emergency exit, which was trapping her inside. Then, according to Manus, his cell phone went dead when he told her to call the cops. He sped back to his shop and ran inside. His employee was in the corner crying. He ran down into the workshop, which I guess that was the only entrance in or out of the workshop, and he couldn't find anyone. He noted that it smelled like cat urine when he went down there. But, of course, they didn't have an animal at their workshop. He also discovered that the glass that she heard breaking was the light bulbs in the workshop. Those were all broken. The saleswoman never returned back to work, which who could blame anyone that goes through anything weird, right? She also did not want to discuss what happened. He didn't put together that anything could be caused by purchasing this new cabinet. About two weeks after the purchase, he decided to start the process of refinishing it. When he opened the box, it had like a little mechanism that caused both little doors and the drawer at the bottom to open at the same time. So if you're curious what this looks like, we're going to be posting a picture of it. And then Lindsay's BFF, Zach Baggins, also did a whole episode on it in his Ghost Adventures series, Quarantine. And so you can actually see like what it looks like when you try to open one door. They both pop open. The drawer opens too. Now inside the box, this is what was listed. One 1928 US penny, a 1925 wheat penny. They're actually kind of worth some money. One 1928 U.S. wheat penny, one 1925 U.S. wheat penny. I am no coin connoisseur, if you will. Coin collector? I don't know what that is. Yeah, Uh, I am not a coin scientist, but my grandfather collected coins. Okay. And my dad was like sorting through and saw like wheat pennies and was like, oh, and then my neighbor also unprompted one day had a discussion about wheat pennies with me. I've never heard of them. So they're things that people want then. Yes. One small lock of blonde hair bound with a string. One small lock of black or brown hair also bound with a string. One small granite statue engraved and gilded with Hebrew letters. And then in the posting, it said, I have been told that the letters spell out the word shalom. One dried rosebud. One golden wine cup. One very strange black cast iron candlestick holder with octopus legs, which looks awesome. And now I want octopus leg candlesticks. I'm skeptical. I'm making a list of the inconsistencies of the story as we we go through it. Yeah. And remember, this is all from the eBay listing. Yes. So this is what Manus told the public, you know, like in a listing. Mm -hmm. 
He tried to return the items, but the family did not want them. So he's like, you want this octopus like candlestick? And they're like, no. He cleaned the cabinet and rubbed some lemon oil on it. While doing so, he noticed Hebrew inscription in the back. He doesn't know what it says or means, though. On his mom's birthday, which was October 28th of 2001, she decided to go out of town with his sister and postpone the celebration. On October 31st, 2001, so Halloween, she came into the shop and he gave her the cabinet. She was looking it over and Manis went to make a quick phone call. He was gone less than five minutes. Then an employee came running in and said something is wrong with his mom. She was sitting next to the cabinet without an expression. She looked kind of gone, but tears were coming down her face. She wouldn't respond to him talking and she had had a stroke. The ambulance came and said she suffered partial paralysis and even the ability to speak. But later, luckily, that did come back. While still unable to speak, she used the alphabet to talk. She spelled out N-O-G-I-F-T, no gift, and H-A-T-E-G-I-F-T, hate gift. Are you talking about like your parent is like having a stroke, possibly dying, and their last words to you are, I don't like this gift you gave me. I think at the hospital after she was taken from the ambulance. No, but my point is like, it's this like terrible moment. You're terrified for your parent and like they're going on about a gift you gave them that they don't like. I would imagine that his first thought wasn't like, spooky box, made my mom sick. Yeah, most normal people wouldn't go there. So just that being the thing she's saying, right? It's very strange. It is, yeah. So he still didn't think anything was due to the cabinet. And the same day of her stroke, the lease to a store was terminated without a cause. You can't see Lindsay's faces as I'm telling the story. Squints and lawyer. Yeah, she's just, I have to look away because it's going to make me laugh too much. <laughs> so now she's making noises. Okay. No, I read, I read the next sentence and I was like, damn. So since his mom didn't like the cabinet, he gave it to his sister who returned it a week later. She said that she couldn't get the doors to stay closed and they popped open. He says that there are no springs at the mechanism wouldn't do that. So he gave it then to his brother and his wife and they returned it three days later. His sister-in-law said it smelled like cat urine. But his brother said it smelled like jasmine flowers. Here's one thing. Out of all of this so far, this is the biggest inconsistency for me. Most men do not know the difference between any sort of flower. So then he gave it to his girlfriend who asked him to sell it for her two days later. <laughs> Striking. Also, I do not want to like twice reject a gift. Give it up. Do you think that he would have sold it if he could have? Right. I feel like he would have either. Yeah. I mean, this is how it ended up on eBay eventually. But I feel like most people would just be polite and take it to Goodwill. No, because he'd be like looking for it in her house. It fell and it broke. Also, like, OK, you're dating a guy. He brings you a wine chest that he gave to his mother. She didn't like he gave to his sister. And she was like, this smells like cat pee. And he thought, you know who wants this? My girlfriend. My girlfriend wants this cat pee wine cabinet that's been rejected by all the women in my family. Maybe he didn't want the relationship to continue. So he gave her the cat pee cabinet. That is an excellent way of breaking up with her. Yeah. I didn't tell you, but a friend had a housewarming party over the weekend. Mm -hmm. But I did find them a fantastic creepy statue thing Ooh. that I immediately hid in their house. And I named her Gertrude. Oh, perfect. Uh, when I come to your house, I will find something scary, but not like haunted, just weird and put it in your house for you. That's a game that I play with friends is. Yeah, as you should. We find weird things. We have a statue that says I miss you and it's M-I-T-H-U. 
Oh, I do like that. It has really big eyes and we've hidden that between houses and cars. We have a black eyed child that we found that is right now in my bedroom. It was hidden on one of my shelves, but behind stuff. And I was dusting and found it the other day. Nothing says bedroom vibes like a black eyed child. Yeah. And then I added Gertrude to this mix and it is currently between some plants on their mantle. Good old Gertie. I would love pictures of these, by the way. I think you should share them with everyone. Yeah, I'll share the black eyed child. I miss you and Gertie. Yeah. Good old Gertie. Okay, so. He then sold it to a middle-aged couple who returned it three days later with a note. Note said, this has a bad darkness. I had no idea what that meant. Mm -hmm. I feel like they would have just like thrown it back at them or like, actually, you know what? How did he sell it and they returned it with a note? Unless they sent it back to him. Because remember, the lease on his business had been terminated for no reason. Maybe it hadn't ended yet. Maybe they were like, you have till the end of the week or whatever. Perhaps. Yeah. And his last final thing was, I'm going to sell this cabinet to some unsuspecting person. Yeah. So he ended up taking it home. And how he didn't know this was a bad thing by this point eludes me. He started having reoccurring nightmares. He would be walking with someone he knows or trusts, and then he'd stare into their eyes and realize that they are different. Then they would turn into some gruesome hag and beat him up. And then he would wake up with bruises. So at this point, do you think that he thinks that it's a woman spirit in there? At this point, he didn't even think anything of it. He didn't know that anything was connected. Then this is really weird. His sister, brother, and sister-in-law come over and stay the night. The following morning, his sister describes the exact same nightmare and that she's had it before. So like before she stayed the night too. Then his brother and sister-in-law also described having the same dream. They all compared the dreams and it was the exact same one with the same hag. They finally figured out that they all had that dream when they were in the house with the cabinet. Then he's like, huh, let's like check this out. He calls his girlfriend and asks if she's had any weird nightmares lately. She also describes it. And this time, though, she couldn't remember what exact date she had it. So he's like, well, wait, was it the day before you got rid of the cabinet? And she's like, yes. How did you know that? He then started to see shadows. Visitors in this house also saw them. He put the cabinet in an outdoor storage unit. That night, he woke up to a smoke alarm going off in that unit. When he opened it to investigate, he saw no smoke. He did, though, smell cat urine. Then when he got back inside his house, he smelled the cat pee again. He has no cat. He then brought the cabinet back inside to do some research about it. He's like, huh, this is weird. What is this thing about? He fell asleep while researching and had the nightmare again. At 4.30 in the morning, he woke up. He felt and smelled someone breathing on his neck. The house also smelled like jasmine flowers. He then saw a huge shadow figure walking down the hall away from him. He thought about destroying the cabinet, but he didn't know what could happen and wanted to sell it to someone more knowledgeable. He then opened it up for bidding. So as it sold, from what I understand, additional owners continued to tell basically Manus's story as it was sold over and over again. But I couldn't find a detailed explanation of how many times it was sold. And then when I was trying to figure out when Zach got a hold of this box, all I could find is that there's some speculation that he paid a lot of money for it. He's like, I want this box. It's supposedly the most haunted object. I need it for my museum. And at some point he paid for it. Yeah. But there was one report that says Zach reportedly paid tens of thousands of dollars for this box. What a decision that was for him. 
So last night, I rented a Ghost Adventures episode about the Dybbuk box. She took one for the team this time. I very much took one for the team, Lindsay, because I had to sit here and I had to watch it and I gave them monies to watch it. So they did a quarantine series when the virus was like at its peak. It sounds like it was like April of last year. And basically the series was leading up to him opening this Dybbuk box. He even talks about Post Malone during it, too, his experience and like what had happened. And this is like the finale of their little mini series called Quarantine. Mm -hmm. And he talks to Manis. He does a video conference with Kevin Manis, talks about what's been going on with the box. Post Malone says like he felt like they were guided slash manipulated into going in there when Post Malone was visiting and that he had a vision and a motive to open it while Post was there. And he put his hand on the box. He says he felt a jolt go into his arm and his body. And he started like panicking and crying and stepped back. And then that's where me and you talked about it last time where Post Malone like went to like reach for him, right? And then Manus goes on to say, that's the same thing that happened with my mother. But it's not, right? Like a stroke is very different from a, like a panic attack is what he's describing. Yes, that is different. Slightly, right? Just a little different. So... Kevin then goes into the story and the way that they filmed it is like Kevin said this and it's kind of going back and forth between like Zach describing what Kevin said. But he says the deceased previous owner and others summoned an entity from a dark realm. And they believe that from that time on that they had unleashed all of evil that happened throughout the remainder of the 20th century. And then a couple examples they said was World War II, Korean War, chemical accident in India. Lindsay's face lit up here. I said mad, but we're like, we're at a whole new level. Mm -hmm. We're at like a whole new level. So they took a Jewish artifact and said that that Jewish artifact was responsible for the Holocaust. Do they even realize how problematic and awful that is? I mean, that feels pretty morally reprehensible to me. Oh, there's more. There's more. Let me keep going. So the woman set out to undo her mistake and trapped the and ripped it apart into 10 different components of evil, put them into 10 different original Dybbuk boxes and sent them to the edges of the world. Then at this moment, Zach Baggins says, I have another one and revealed it to the public for the first time in this episode. And he says, I got the second one from Manus. So this Spurred a lot of feelings here. So like one. Got a lot of feelings. I'm yeah. A lot of feelings right now. That's a good way to describe <laughs> what's happening right here right now. One, they went to the ends of the earth, right? Like they Voldemort style put these into boxes, into things, sprinkled them around the world so that clearly their whole goal was for them not to be near each other again, right? Like why else would you throw them around the world? Uh-huh. Then these two morons are going to like Captain Planet these boxes together and unleash all of evil. Is that what they're going for? I'm having a hard time finding words for just the sheer lunacy. Also, they've clearly crossed a line at this point because there is inappropriate, distasteful exaggerations. Yeah. And then there's this. And this is pretty gross. Really, really gross. And the reason why Lindsay is so heated is we're going to get into more in just a few minutes. But just to continue, we'll understand a little bit more. So Kevin then tells Zach that the boxes align with the Tree of Life concept from Kabbalah. And the first one represents Keter. And it's like the top of human consciousness. That is the wine cabinet. Okay, that's like the top, tippity top of it. 
The other one represents Mahoth. I hope I said that right. Which is the reason that the box looks like a root because its foundation is the lowest one. That's the smaller box that Zach has. It looks kind of like a box with like tree roots at the bottom. Mana says that over the years, he has received six more of the boxes. They represent the other states. However, there are two still out there and their locations are unknown. Manus feels that if all the boxes come together and are opened at the same time, it'll reunite the evil. And here's where another part where I'm like, okay, you think that all evil, right, is put into these 10 little boxes, yet you're running around and you're clearly saying it's scary stuff, right? It's it's not good. But you're running around collecting them like fucking Pokemon cards and trading them around with Zack? This is it's garbage. It's not even good garbage. It's bad garbage. So after all of this, right, basically Mana says like if you open them, you could die. Like that could be if you open both together because Zach's like, well, what happens if I open them both? And he's like, well, you could die. One could only hope. Then it goes on, you know, like their normal episodes. It's a little dramatic. One guy passes out at one point. They open the box. They open both boxes. Zach gets, I don't even know how to say it, more aggressive than normal. But like he's normally pretty aggressive. And basically it's just like over the top acting, you know, like they're grumpy. One's passing out. The other one's really scared. They're hearing noises. They're seeing things. Oh, they're acting like soccer players. Like they're like that kind of exaggerated. Like when they get like touched and they like throw themselves to the ground screaming like that kind of thing. In a way, I mean, a little less than that. But at one point they're like, look at what my camera got. And he's like, it shows a cloud coming from the Dybbuk box. And he's like, look, the cloud has eyes and it resembles the fiend from hell depicted in the 19th century literature. And I was like, it looked like a cartoon cloud. But I mean, yeah, my first thought was 19th century literature demon fiend, too. But yeah, towards the end, he literally picks up the box and angrily walks around with the box around his building. And then I'll just leave it at that. That's what happened. Okay, so... We're going to get into Dybbuk's and what they are, and we will talk about them from the culture and religion from which they're from. But before we do that, just a few questions, just a few points about this story. Okay. Okay. So if the person who had the box died in 2001 and was 103, that means they were born in 1897. The Holocaust began in 1941. So that means the youngest that this person would have been when they had a baby would have been 44 years old, which is kind of old for a first child, right? It is. Yeah, it is. Okay, so that's strange. And that child would then be the granddaughter's parent. There are registries that have Holocaust survivors, and I believe it's a voluntary inclusion that you can have in it. Right. But the name that was given in this story was Havale, and there is no Havale in them that I could find. Also, why would a wine cabinet from Spain have wheat pennies from the United States from the 20s? That doesn't make sense. I've got a lot of questions. Yes. So for the weird objects inside the box, this was more things that I read while trying to find. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, like this isn't going to be one where we're like, this is solid evidence of whatever. But some chatter about it was sometimes you would leave it something like you would leave whatever was in this box. So my thought is maybe not all of it came from this particular person. Again, I don't buy any of it either, but I'm wondering if maybe think of the people that are buying it on eBay, right? Like think of haunted dolls. Even people are like, oh, I'm buying a haunted doll. Meanwhile, this person, you've seen some of the ones where they're like, oh, I'm going to put some black eyes on this doll and give it some fishnets. Yeah, no, I got you. Like, that's an addition. Exactly. So I wonder if someone got it and was like, I'll leave it my most prized penny. I'll leave it 
a lock of my hair. But I'm, I'm guessing that Holocaust time, there wasn't these really awesome octopus candlesticks. Yeah, easily found. So I'm wondering if things were added later that didn't necessarily come from that story. Not that I buy that story, but maybe they're from different people. Okay. So neither Amanda or myself are Jewish now or in our life. So we did a lot of research into Dybbuk because Dybbuk are a Jewish possessing spirit. And because that is the culture from which they come, that is the appropriate source of information for Dybbuk. And one of the things that I came across when doing research for this was an article by Elizabeth Ayers titled The Moral of the Dybbuk Box. Don't open what does not belong to you. And so I'm going to give you a couple quotes because this really framed like how I looked at this. And I think how to have a conversation as a person who is not Jewish about something that is not ours. Right. And in this article, they're also talking about the movie The Possession, which is about this Dybbuk box from Kevin Manis. It's inspired by it, if you will. So the story of the Dybbuk box is one that takes a historical, mythicalized object birthed from the struggles of a Jewish family and sensationalizes the way its seemingly pre-existing, quote unquote, evilness affects non-Jewish identifying people. Sounds a little bit like how white people like to tell ghost stories about how the evil spirit of a white enslaver haunts tourists who visit this plantation and then those same people get married on said historic plantation because the architecture is beautiful. It detracts from the dominant culture, taking accountability and respecting painful histories and instead shifts the focus to the people who do not have the rights to the narrative. Fair. And this was written before this hubbubaloo about 10 boxes and some great evil that was trapped. This was written before this and it like, yeah, it rings true, right? And so she goes on to discuss how folks don't talk about Judaism and the Jewish culture when discussing the Dybbuk box. And that's one of the problems. So she goes on to talk about whether anything that has cultural language written on it and that it was treasured by a genocide survivor be put on display, have its origins erased and be solicited for entertainment of watching white guys in muscle t-shirts scream about how they just heard a demon voice. Who do you think she's talking about there? Who do you think she's talking about? And so like reading that, I was like, yeah, yeah, that is a lot how we hear about the Dybbuk box. You know, it's hilarious. So like you already said it, but this was written before last year when he did that episode. Yeah, yeah, because it was already wrong. And one of the reasons that it's wrong is that, look, I am not a Jewish scholar, but I tried to read as much about Dybbuk's from Jewish scholars as I could find. Yeah. I never once saw anything about a Dybbuk box. There's plenty about Dybbuk's, but not once is a Dybbuk box mentioned. So what they've done here is they've taken a part of a, a religion and then sensationalized it falsely and then acted as though it's a thing. Mm-hmm. And now that there's 10 more to make money off of or nine more. Yeah. And now there's nine other ones. So it's sexy and they can sell more things and make people watch their shows and sell advertisements. And it's categorically disgusting. Well, think about it. If he paid tens of thousands of dollars, that's not confirmed in any way. But let's say he did. Right. He has the money to. He could have. And then Manus now comes up. He's like, well, guess what, buddy? I have six more of these bad boys. Yeah. And then here's another one. Like he says he got it from Manus. I'm guessing he bought it. Right. And how many other people have already attacked Manus for the other ones? At best, Zach Baggins is dumb. At worst, 
he's problematic and exploitive. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Yeah, we have uh, capital S, capital F, strong feelings on this one. So let's talk about Dybbuk's in the Jewish religion from what we found. Again, we're including this as a discussion so that you're like, oh, well, why would you think that Dybbuk boxes aren't a thing? So we always include our sources on our website. But as we discuss this next section, I just wanted to mention that there's two articles that we really focused on heavily that really helped with our research. And the first was Feminist Dybbuk's Spirit Possession Motif in Post-Second Wave Jewish Women's Fiction. And that's by Agnieszka Legutko. And the second is Two Cultural Patterns of Altered Consciousness in Judaism by Yoram Billa. So what are Dybbuk's? Because I think that when we think of possessions generally, we're thinking of demon, right? Especially with Catholicism in terms of like those types of possessions is typically demons. Dybbuk means I've seen a few different definitions. Some call it a homeless soul. Others say that it comes from a Hebrew term that means cling, sleeve, or adhere. And it was first used in a Yiddish text from 1680. Right. And I've seen other people call it malicious spirit too. Yeah. And I feel like when it's people who aren't Jewish, they are adding a little bit like morality to it than it is, which I just think is interesting. Yeah. So per Erica Borignan's research from of 488 quote unquote traditional societies, 74% of them have a possession belief and 52% of those have some sort of possession trance-like state that they have. And so Dybbuk possession is tied to a concept from the 12th century regarding the transmigration of souls into both animals and human bodies as a way of purifying the soul. Interesting. Yeah. And so over time, the idea of transmigration shifted from purification through several rounds of reincarnation to atone so they could get to the world of the dead. So by the late 13th century, the concept was expanded as Eber, which was the temporary impregnation of another soul into a person's body. And the Dybbuk possession was the Eber of a wicked soul. The first documented Dybbuk possession was in the 1540s. Some think that possession occurs more frequently when there are traumatic experiences and or social distress. And it could also be that that's when they're recorded as well. But so there were a lot more Dybbuk possession cases recorded in the 16th and 17th centuries where there were massacres, there was expulsions from Spain, there was witch hunts in Europe, and there was even the false messiah. The mystical Hasidic movement of the 18th century is also correlated to more Dybbuk possessions. Early Dybbuk possession cases were reported in Europe, the Middle East, and North Africa communities. Billa credited the lack of Dybbuk possession accounts to, quote, the disintegration of the Jewish traditional centers in Europe and the Middle East due to modernization, emigration, and physical extermination. And so I think Amanda and I have kind of discussed this in the past, is that when you think possession, you don't necessarily automatically think women. But I know most cases of possession that we've heard of generally are women, right? Like it is predominantly women, which is interesting. And Legutko also discusses that when she's talking particularly about Dybbuk. And she talks about possessions as a gendered phenomenon because women are the primary victims. And that never occurred to me before now. Like, oh, maybe there is a reason why more people think that women are possessed generally. And so Bilu did a review of literary and non-literary Dybbuk possession cases that were recorded Recorded by men, which I think is another important note. And these accounts are from the 16th century and on. 65% were women. 92% of the spirits were men, which is why I asked, like, do you think that spirit's a woman? Because that would be unusual if you're looking at this, right? And so they were looking at a sample of 63 possession cases. 36 were male spirits possessing women. 22 were male spirits possessing men. And there were five cases of female spirits possessing women. But there were zero female spirits possessing men, which I think is very interesting, right? Because like, 
Yeah. What would that look like? And when men are possessed, it's typically children or young men. So the accounts of Divic possession were written by men in largely until the second wave of feminism. And that's when women started writing Divic stories as well. And before then, the center of the stories were the Dybbuk itself, which is usually a man, and the rabbi who performed the exorcism. And the woman, usually, who was possessed was kind of like the secondary character. Interesting. Yeah. When women started writing about Dybbuk's, they also included other themes. And the Dybbuk possession was important in the story, but the rabbi and the Dybbuk themselves started to become kind of like secondary parts of the story. And the story instead focused on arranged marriage, sexual difference, domestic violence, mother-daughter relationships. And so I just thought that was kind of interesting. So Dybbuk possession is typically linked with religious transgressions. And it's thought that the soul of the Dybbuk was refused entrance to the afterlife. And they needed to possess the body of a living person to atone. And usually the person who they possessed had committed some kind of slight religious misconduct. Okay, so when you're thinking of possession, I think in terms of Catholic possession of demons, we have like a very specific kind of like the person's like crab walking backwards, right? Like they're acting strangely. They're screaming in tongues. They have demonic voices, right? Right. That's the kind of vision you get. So in the first book of the Torah, it states, a man shall therefore leave his father and mother and be united with slash cleave onto his wife and they shall become one flesh. So one of the things that Lagutko talks about is that in Divic possession, they, quote, repeatedly use the idiom of transgressive bonding, that is rape or the forced penetration of a living body by the spirit of a dead person, which takes place via the genitalia. The violent but convulsive, lewd, aggressive or subversive behavior of the possessed person is often has sexual overtones. And so I feel like when we talk about possession cases, we always see the person kind of like making these guttural screams that could be sexual-esque, but we aren't hearing that they're entering through the vagina. Whereas that is a common theme here. I've never heard of that. That's weird. Yeah, I didn't know that either. It's, it's an interesting kind of difference from how I understood what I was reading. They were likening it to like a sexual union between spouses as the way that like a Dybbuk would also become one with a person. Interesting because when we see now possessions in like movies and even um, I think we've talked about it before where they thought that they were going to go through their mouth. Yes. Like that's why they put like the rock in their mouth even, right? Yes, yes. And so I think that that's a really interesting difference in how the possessions look. Yeah. But I would say, though, that like regardless of what culture you're looking at, I feel like the way that a person's body moves and the way that they're screaming like could be similar-esque sometimes. But so it's also described that the person who's possessed is they're at the beginning of their sex life or it's like right before they would get married. And there are two different types of possession. And that's the negative and the positive. The negative would be an involuntary dybbuk, which forcefully enters the body and needs to be expelled by exorcism. And then there's also a union with an angel or another spiritual guide that brings visions and they reveal religious secrets to Jewish men and women. And I think we've talked about this before, but in terms of when we're looking at possession, like when you look at the mystical, now we would have different diagnoses, right? Like you would think like, oh, like you could be this or that. 
But so some of the other kind of modern diagnoses that would mimic or be the same as possession symptoms would be epilepsy, high fever, sleep deprivation, psychosis, schizophrenia, multiple personality disorder. Legucco also talks about feminist reasoning behind the perception of possession would be rebellion against social oppression or male domination, expression of sexual frustration, ways of enhancing status. And just as a note, we hear like that, like demonic, deep, guttural, right? Like that's the Catholic possession, right? I say Catholic because it's like Catholic Christian, but I feel like you see it more like a Catholic priest exercising. Yeah. But it's deep in an unnatural way. I wonder if one could hear like a woman speaking deeply and think that she was speaking unnaturally, if she was being assertive or forceful or that kind of stuff. Well, maybe. So Legutko also has a possession quiz in her article. It says if you answer yes to more than three, then you're possessed. But I think that one of the important things to note is from what I understood, Dybbuk's only possess people who are Jewish. So if you're not Jewish, this is inherently a no for you, I believe. But so these are the questions she had. Do you speak with a different male if you're a woman, roaring hoarse voice that is strangely not your own? Is it so loud that it, quote, makes the walls shake and produces so much, quote, weeping and wailing that terror seizes all that are present and their hearts dissolve with fear and their knees tremble? Like Rochelle's in Ivy Singer's Satan in Grey and Leah in the Dybbuk by S. Ansky and many other possessed characters. Do exhibit such enormous strength that even, quote, 10 men cannot suppress you, like singers Rochelle. Do you have a feeling that something is, quote, breaking your bones, wrenching your heart, and soon the awful pain makes you swoon, like Mendel and the tale of the evil spirit of Kratz? Do you publicly identify sinners in your community like the possessed young man in 1602 Maze story? Do you have trouble sleeping for several nights in a row because there is a demon in your feather bed? Do you utter such obscenities that people are sickened with disgust and revulsion as Rochelle? Do you make such lewd gesticulations as cannot be put down in writing as Rochelle? Do you enumerate someone else's, i.e. your possessing spirit, sins in public, like Mendel, Rochelle, or the young man from Maze Buck, or reveal happenings that are simultaneously taking place someplace else? Do you converse in languages you did not know before? Do you have a feeling that you are never on your own, that your body is inhabited by more than one soul, and that you are not always in charge of your actions? Interesting. That was a cool way of like summing up. Here are some <laughs> symptoms of Dybbuk possession. But is all possession in the Jewish faith Dybbuk's? Or are there different types of possessions? So remember before I talked about how there's positive and negative. So you're either basically an angel or a Dybbuk possession. Those are the options. Oh, yeah. So here's the thing, too. From what I understand, they're only going to possess Jewish people because part of it is to eventually get to their afterlife, right? So that's one of the things that I find so interesting about Manus and Baggins and their theatrics is that they act as though they would be harmed by this. People who would be susceptible to Dybbuk's because from what I understand, it exists in like a closed universe within Judaism. So it would be strange if they were affected by them. Right. Baggins being more aggressive than usual or any of that. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's a little weird. And so exorcisms are typically done by men, which is another reason why it's strange that they were saying that a woman was the person who captured this being in a box. So some things about typical, quote unquote, Dybbuk exorcisms. They're done in a synagogue. So they're in the presence of a minyan with seven Torah scrolls, seven black candles and seven shofar. There are optional herbs to repel demons that might be burned. The rabbi or traditional healer says specific psalms and incantations. They also may negotiate with the Dybbuk. And I feel like that's another interesting kind of difference when you're looking at a Catholic exorcism is the Catholic exorcism is like, be gone, hell beast, go to hell, right? Like go from whence you came. 
But here they're treating the spirit as though they were once a human, right? So they ask them to identify themselves, to confess their transgressions. They specify specific conditions of departure and they get them to agree to leave through a minor organ. And the example that I saw in both articles was like the big toe. If the negotiations aren't successful, then the spirit will be excommunicated, which I'm assuming would mean that it would never reach its afterlife. Members of the congregation and or the exorcist will read religious texts or fast in order to help the spirit find its way to its eternal rest. So if the exercise person does survive, which is pretty unlikely, they'll be given an amulet to protect themselves from future possession and they will be married off. And I think that's a really important note is that they're like, oh, you're going to be married after that. So from non-Jewish sources, I saw divic boxes are typically wine boxes, which supposedly house divics that are released upon the box being open. Most boxes are sealed with wax, which is said to be the traditional method for trapping divics. But I never saw a divic box mentioned. And so I mentioned those two articles, but we obviously read other ones. Those were just two that had like a wealth of information. But I never saw a Jewish person talking about the like traditional method for trapping a divic. And if you type in divic curse on Google, it has 26 hits. If you type in Divic Box, it has 93,000. And I think that's because of fucking Zach Baggins. But I find it fascinating that there's this whole rich history and belief system about Divics that I didn't know about before. And I wouldn't be exposed to them, right? Because from what I understand, that wouldn't be a risk that I would have as a person who's not Jewish. But I find it especially egregious that even a cursory bit of research into what a Divic actually was. Yeah, what a Divic actually is renders everything I feel like pretty useless. And and that's not to say like we've talked about them before. Haunted objects. I think that objects can be haunted. It could have been just a good old haunted box. We saw haunted chairs for sale. We've seen haunted dolls. So things could just be good old fashioned haunted. Right. And okay, no need to appropriate another religion in order to make your wine box sell for tens of thousands of dollars to someone who wants to exploit it. And then create more. And then like double down multiple times. It's disappointing at best, especially because Amanda and I have voiced our displeasure for Zach Paggins in the past. I mean, probably since the start of the show, because we didn't like how he covered Velisca. Yeah. And we found it disrespectful and rude and just kind of arrogant, honestly. A little gauche, if you will. But this is like a whole different animal from what I see. And so right. I think that when you are looking at how other cultures handle the mystical, if you're not doing it with respect, then you're doing it wrong as far as I'm concerned. But I know like when Amanda and I first talked about the Dybbuk box with Post Malone, I don't really think we mentioned its history at all, right? We were like, we'll talk about that next time. And it wasn't until we like really dove in that we realized, oh, this is inherently problematic. Yeah, and I'm wondering what actually happened with Post Malone because they did look fearful. And honestly, think about putting yourself in that situation, right? You're at a supposedly haunted museum. The owner is acting very strange. Wouldn't you feel really worried and creeped out and scared? Like, I certainly would. Yeah, I mean, and here's my thing. I'm not saying that that box isn't haunted. I'm not saying that it doesn't have bad and dark energy attached to it. Right. I'm just saying it's not a Dybbuk. Exactly. So it's inappropriately named. And then also, 
I don't fully believe that something's wrong with that box. I know that Post Malone did have like a stint of horrible, horrible things happen to him. Yeah. I wonder if maybe there was something else. I mean, he was at the museum. There's a ton of scary things in there that could be real, could not be. Oh my gosh, there's so many things. Like two things. One, walking into a place filled with haunted objects and being like, I'm surprised bad things happened is silly. And two, I've seen interviews with Kevin Manis's mother where she talks about how it felt to be in the same places as the box, as we will call it, from henceforth. And she very much seemed like a person who was terrified and she very much seemed genuine. Yeah. But at the end of the day, like, perhaps it's haunted, but it's not a Dybbuk box. Right. Because as far as I'm aware, that's not a real thing. And I am only willing to entertain knowledge otherwise if you are a person from the Jewish faith. Because otherwise you have no business defending the Dybbuk box, in my opinion. So we're interested on your viewpoints. Did you know this before? Do you know of other cultures' possessions and how they handle unseen possessions? Mm -hmm. Do you think that this particular box in the haunted museum is indeed haunted then? What do you think it is? Yeah. I mean, and can you believe anything if you can't even believe its name? And with that, have a good weekend. Thanks for creeping with us. Thank you for listening to Cool Creep. Thanks for listening. For more information on our sources, please visit our website, truecreeps.com. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can follow us on Instagram at truecreepspod, on Facebook at facebook.com slash truecreepspod, and on Twitter at truecreeps. We'd love for you to keep creeping with us. So if you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the show with your fellow creeps.